I'd like to begin uh, my reflections with you uh, with a very familiar Thomas Merton prayer. Uh, I'm going to pray this, but I think it's, it's not a bad way uh, in the spirit of meditation and, ground, and grounding ourselves to think about where we go from here. And that's one of the major themes of uh, our time together today, thinking in particular about, about Advent and the season to come. So this prayer uh, comes to us from Thomas Merton's little book, Thoughts and Solitude. And as I say, it may be familiar to many of us. My Lord God, I have no idea where I am going. I do not see the road ahead of me. And I cannot know for certain where it will end. Nor do I really know myself. And the fact that I think I am following your will does not mean that I am doing so. But I believe that the desire to please you does, in fact, please you. And I hope that I have that desire in all that I am doing. I hope that I will never do anything apart from that desire. And I know that if I do this, you will lead me by the right road, though I may know nothing about it. Therefore, I will trust you always, though I may seem to be lost and in the shadow of death. I will not fear. You are ever with me, and you will never leave me to face my perils alone. And let us say, Amen. So I've uh, organized our time together in five sections, and we will uh, spend some of our time before lunch on the first two, and then some of our time uh, this afternoon with what remains. Can everybody see this little screen, even in the back? Okay. Um, in order to begin reflecting on Advent, uh, I'd like to think and pray and reflect with you on what Advent actually means. So I'm going to suggest we start by taking a look at the real meaning of Advent. If that seems confusing, that's okay. Stay tuned. Um, then I'd like us to, to take a look at Thomas Merton and what he has to say, at least a few uh, ideas, a few places, of how he invites us to consider the coming of Christ. And in a sense, isn't that what Advent is all about, right? Our anticipation of Christ who is coming. Uh, then we'll take a, a little break and have some discussion, uh, some Q&A, uh, or comments, or insults, or whatever comes to mind. Uh, and then we'll have our lunch break. When we, when we return, I'd like to reflect with you on uh, an essay that Thomas Merton wrote that uh, some of you may be familiar with, but it's not as well known as some of his other writings, and that's uh, a little piece called Advent, Hope, or Delusion. And my hope in this regard is that we'll move from uh, a sense of contemplation, reflection on the season of Advent as it uh, begins this weekend, and start looking at our move toward the world by following Merton's own turn toward the world, which is what follows. And then to wrap up with a reflection on uh, what Merton calls the hidden ground of love. And I'd like to end that time together this afternoon with, again, some Q&A or some discussion as, as it uh, unfolds. And we will conclude with, I think, just a little bit of quiet time before we go back into the busy world. Does that sound good with everybody? OK. I always say that, and I ask that, and then I follow up with, well, it doesn't matter, because this is what we're going to do anyways. <laughs> but I'm glad. I'm glad it sounds good to you folks. And if you can't hear me at any point, too, uh, in the back, please let me know. 
although I think the sound may be coming from that direction. It is. Uh, okay, thank you, Kate. So first, let's take a look at what I'm going to call the real meaning of Advent. The word itself uh, comes, as some of us may know well already, the Latin word adventus, which does, in a sense, mean an arrival, an advent. But it doesn't mean exactly what I think we Christians and those of us who are in the Christian tradition intended to mean. It comes, the Latin word adventus, from the Roman tradition of the emperor being officially welcomed to a city after, in a particular sense, a military conquest or victory. Not exactly the kind of coming of the Lord that we would expect with Christ, right? Uh, this notion is, is one of uh, celebration, for sure, one of anticipation, no doubt, but it's also one, a sense that is, is awfully violent, uh, associated with violence, with military force, with victory in a political sense. Adventus, as I mentioned, is a celebratory, powerful, triumphant, and at times violent dimension. This is what we have in mind. It centers on these military actions in the royal reception of the Roman emperor. So on the one hand, I bring this up, and I can see some people are thinking, where is he going with this? <laughs> yes, that's good. The other way that Advent means, Adventus means the sense that it has, is a sense, as I mentioned, of anticipation, expectation, and foresight. And so within the Christian tradition, I think this is what we lift up, what we hold on to. In a sense, when the emperor was coming into a town, let's say coming to London from uh, wherever, uh, there was somebody who was sent in advance, a messenger, somebody who would foretell the coming of the emperor. In other words, to set the stage, to set the party, to begin the parade, to roll out the red carpet, to line the streets in formal celebration. And the reason I want to talk about Adventus in this original sense, its origin and its meaning, is to highlight the fact that the coming of Christ is in no way that sense of Advent, right? No sense of Adventus in its origin. People were not expecting the Messiah that actually comes. It should be no, no surprise to us that there were many people who were expecting a messianic figure not unlike an emperor to come. Even some of Christ's own followers were expecting this. What the world got, however, was kind of an anti-advent, an anti-adventus. What the world received was a tiny, totally vulnerable baby child the exact opposite of a victorious military dictator or emperor. The baby would grow up not to be a powerful political leader, again, in contrast to what so many people, including some of his own followers, expected. But in many ways, a simple man who had, as the Gospels remind us, no place to lay his head. He was constantly on the move. He and his followers were poor, itinerant, and the closest thing I think we could imagine to the opposite of a military or political leader. There was no rolling out of the red carpet for the coming of Christ. There wasn't even, as we're so familiar with recounting this time of year, room at the inn. Now there were some 
forerunners, right? At least after the fact, we could look back as Christians at the Old Testament, at the Hebrew prophets, and we can perhaps read an anticipation, an announcing of the coming of someone. But even as we look at the Gospels, his family and followers were confused, perhaps even misled. They were at times indignant or embarrassed, uncertain, doubtful, betraying, and abandoning. It's very difficult to imagine a true adventus in which the citizens of Rome did not fulfill the civic expectation to celebrate the return of the victorious leader. It's very difficult to imagine this happening in the coming of the Lord. What God had in store, nobody could anticipate. The incoming of Christ was a complete surprise. I share this because I think it's important for us to try as best we can as we begin this season that we call an Adventus, to remind ourselves what it is that we anticipate. The incoming of Christ, a real surprise. So how are we to think about Advent? I've said before in in reflecting on the origin of the word Adventus that maybe it would be best for us to come up with a new term, another idea altogether. I think perhaps we can think of another way of approaching this season because the original term adventus, this uh, arrival of the mighty king or emperor, is too often what we, in our own time, maybe two millennia after the original incoming of Christ, what we can slip into in anticipation of something great, in anticipation of something wonderful, all-powerful, almighty, I don't know that that's helpful. I do think it serves us well to think about the word adventus as an opportunity to to imagine something other, to think about what we're really supposed to celebrate during this time of year, especially as we are increasingly overwhelmed by the pressures of life, by consumerism and capitalism around us, by the distractions that encourage us to think about the incoming of not an infant child, not a vulnerable God, but as something mighty and powerful and wonderful. What might it look like for us to consider this time of year differently? It is a season of already not yet. On the one hand, we ready ourselves to celebrate what God has done, that incoming of Christ. And yet, on the other hand, we continue to await the future, the incoming, the invention, right? to, To arrive of Christ in our lives. With this sense of maybe setting aside Advent, setting aside this sort of anticipation of things we know, can we open ourselves up to a possibility that's unknown to us, to an original surprise? My hope is that maybe Thomas Merton might guide us in this process. So since so many people are here on a Saturday morning in December to talk about and to reflect and pray with Thomas Merton, I'm assuming many of you already know something about him, several of you in this audience crowd here, this group, know very, very much about him, more than me. 
But for those who don't, I think it's worthwhile for us to take some time and just refresh ourselves in knowing something about his chronology, his life, so that we can rethink the season of the incoming of Christ. Merton was born on January 31st, 1915. He would be 103 in just a month's time, right? Uh, it's, I don't know, is anyone here 103? I'm not sure that I would want to live that long myself. But. His mother and father died at, uh, relative to Merton, a very young age. Uh, Merton was only six years old when his mother dies of stomach cancer. His father died 10 years later leaving him effectively uh, you know, an orphan. He had a younger brother, uh, John Paul, who also died uh, at a young age, died in World War II in, in 1943. He attended the University of Cambridge for a year, and many of us know that did not go so well. Um, he leaves his studies at the University of Cambridge and moves to the United States, where he begins studies at Columbia University in New York. This is a time, of course, uh, that most people know well because of his, uh, what's what we now call the spiritual autobiography, The Seven-Story Mountain. Uh, there's a lot I can say about Merton's time at Cambridge and the time afterwards, and maybe in the Q&A, if people would like to talk about that, we can explore that. Um, but it's this time at Columbia that is so profound, so significant for him. Um, coming from a relatively unchurched background, right, parents who did not especially practice their faith. Uh, Merton was, as we know from his own accounting, right, pretty resistant to the idea of Christianity, especially to Catholicism, Roman Catholicism in particular. Understood it as anti-intellectual, uh, which is, as a Roman Catholic priest, I totally understand. Everything the Pope says, I do. He says, I say, hi, right? No. But rather, it's in this time that he begins to uh, realize the depth and richness of the Christian tradition, particularly the theological and philosophical tradition. And in a way, not unlike St. Augustine of Hippo, has something of an intellectual conversion. It begins with the head and moves to the heart. Just like Augustine heard the preaching of Ambrose and all of a sudden realized that Christianity wasn't nearly as absurd or thoughtless as he once believed, Merton, too, in studying the medieval philosophical tradition, hearing of the great philosophers and theologians of the Middle Ages, studying at the feet of people like Dan Walsh, came to realize that Christianity wasn't as anti-intellectual, wasn't as absurd or superficial as he once thought. On November 16, 1938, then, he uh, is baptized at Corpus Christi Church and enters uh, the Catholic Communion. From almost that point onward, if not uh, immediately afterward, he's discerning religious life. Now there's a lot I can say about this. Um, the misunderstood experience with my own Franciscan family. Uh, he did discern uh, entering the Franciscan Friars, was accepted at one point. Um, the way that he tells it, and I think the way that a lot of people understand his experience with the Franciscans is a little superficial. Uh, the initial perception is that he's accepted and then kicked out. He's rejected. And that's partly true. Um, but the punchline is, the moral of the story is that he doesn't become a Franciscan friar. He does, however, uh, go to a Franciscan university, 
the university where I happen to have gone to college, uh, St. Bonaventure, and teaches English literature there for about a year and a half, about three terms. And there he befriends uh, a number of Franciscan friars who uh, instruct him, guide him uh, in his intellectual journey even further into the tradition. Uh, he has, as Michael Mott, the official Merton biographer, puts it, something of a secular novitiate. He studies uh, the Christian tradition. He studies, in particular, Franciscan theology and philosophy. Um, but he also deepens his own religious experience, his own prayer life. In 1941, on December 10th, he enters the Abbey of Gethsemane and becomes a Trappist monk. All pretty familiar to most of us, isn't it? The, uh, it's, it's notable, too, that at this point, he's just shy of turning 27 years old. Um, in the next about 27 years as a, a Trappist, he's received into the novitiate in 1942, professes simple vows in 1944. And before being ordained uh, a ministerial priest, The Seven Story Mountain is published, and Thomas Merton, who at this point has surrendered everything to the idea of Brother Lewis, becomes the Thomas Merton that we know today. 1953, The Sign of Jonas is published. 1955 becomes uh, the novice master which those of you who are familiar with religious life is a thankless job, uh, being formation director, uh, something that I certainly would never want and certainly would never wish upon others, but an important one nonetheless. 1958, he has, and some of us were just talking about this, uh, his what's called the Epiphany at 4th and Walnut Streets, the corner of 4th and Walnut. Um, it's written about in his journals, and we'll talk about this a little bit more uh, in, in short order. But it's not the only epiphany that he's ever had. Um, there are many experiences in Merton's life, key moments, transitional moments in his life that are worth noting. But the reason I believe this one gets so much attention has to do with the same, uh, what was going on at the same time, what we'll call a turning to the world, an awareness, an increasing interest in social issues, the concerns of his time, and uh, those that include men and women who are particularly marginalized, who experience violence, uh, those who are struggling in the world. And this continues through the rest of his life, sadly, uh, a short-lived life at this point. From 1960 to 1968, uh, he begins to spend more time as a hermit on the grounds of the Abbey of Gethsemane. Uh, initially, he gets permission to spend part of his days in a temporary little hut. Uh, by the end of his life, he's spending uh, his, his time in the hermitage uh, full-time. 1968, he receives permission to give some conferences in Asia and heads to the western part of the United States, to California, to Alaska, uh, to the southwest of the U.S., ostensibly to explore the possibility of a more remote hermitage, to become more isolated, uh, to, to seek greater solitude than he felt himself afforded on the grounds of the Abbey. Then he travels uh, to Asia for a series of conferences, where on December 10th in 1968, he dies very suddenly uh, due to accidental electrocution. Those who know the story, he 
uh, ends a morning conference by saying, uh, we will deal with the questions and conversation in the afternoon. Um, so I'm going to leave for a while, and we can all have a Coke, something to that effect. Well, we thought that was very interesting. His last recorded words was a commercial advertisement for the international conglomerate Coca-Cola. It's interesting that the Coca-Cola Corporation has never used that as a slogan. I also am very hesitant to recall that experience, his last on this earth, because uh, a setting such as this, because we'll gather this morning, we'll have our get lunch, and we'll come back this afternoon. And so if I say, let's have a Coke uh, before lunch, uh, make sure I'm not near any exposed wires. So it's good that Kate buried this one over here. She was concerned I might trip. So he spends the second half of his life, you know, he was again just shy of, of turning 51. Uh, I'm sorry, 54. Uh, he, he died at 53. Um, it's interesting that it's exactly 27 years to the day that he entered the Abbey of Gethsemane that he enters eternal life, that he dies. I hope that does justice, at least as a re reminder, kind of a, a kind of a refresher for those of us familiar with Merton's life, just to get a sense of of, of who he is and uh, you know, how he how he lived, how he moved through the world. Um, I'd also like to say something about what's so appealing about Thomas Merton. Why I think it's worthwhile to spend time with him, especially at the beginning of the season that we call Advent. First and foremost, Merton is a, is very human. <laughs> as should not be surprising, he was, in fact, human, um, and very relatable. On the one hand, we can tell from those who knew Merton, we can tell from his own writings, his journals and letters and books, that he is both generous and selfish. He's both humble and arrogant. He is, we might say, both a saint and a sinner. And I think that's one of the things that I find most attractive about uh, Merton's life and writings, his example, is that unlike so many spiritual figures and guides in our tradition, we, Merton is not so easily uh, whitewashed. He's not so easily uh, reduced to a statue to be put on a pedestal. He's somebody that we can connect to, somebody that we can relate to. Merton was also a mystic and a contemplative, a prophet and a guide who shows us that we share an original unity that has been blocked over, ignored, and forgotten. He says, and we'll look at this a little bit more, particularly in the afternoon, uh, that we are already one, but we imagine that we are not. And at a time in our history, at a time in our lives, in which uh, there are so many reasons to think that we are not already one, so many forces, so many influences, so much talk about how we are different and need to emphasize those differences, emphasize uh, division, uh, emphasize hostility toward others. I think Merton's contemplative, mystical, and prophetic guidance is, is very well needed. He calls us to a spirit of conversion, which is something he was familiar with because uh, he understood his whole life as a, a, a kind of an ongoing conversion talks about transformation, and I think invites us into a transformative experience. First and foremost, I think Merton's uh, model, his example, his writings remind us that transformation is not easy, nor is it comfortable. This is not something that we can do 
right away. It's not something that's uh, easily done. Transformation requires dedication, attention, patience, and commitment. Transformation does not happen overnight or in an instant. Transformation in Christ, for Merton, takes the form, as I've said already, of a lifetime of conversion, or better, conversions. Constantly calling ourselves to renewal, to return. I open with this uh, because I, this is my hope for us, is that in reflecting a little bit more on the season we call Advent, on the incoming of Christ into our lives, on the reason for the season, is that an expression that gets used here often? What is the reason for the season? No. Okay. Well, this is something in the U.S. we hear uh, uh, quite a bit trying to say, well, it's not about Santa Claus, and it's not about the Christmas tree, and it's not about uh, decorations. You've got to remember the reason for the season, which is presumably Christ. I say presumably uh, because actually I think oftentimes the reason for the season tends to be sin. You celebrate that with holiday cards, right? Merry Christmas, you sinner. Is that not popular? I'm just kidding. That's not popular anywhere. But on a serious note, why? Why Christmas? What is it that we actually celebrate? What is the true reason for the season? What is the reason the Word became flesh? What is the reason that God became human? Now, there are two general schools one, I would call the majority tradition, the kind of typical view of why God became human. And that's sometimes called the infralapsarian view, or the reason that has to do with the human fall, the fall at, at, in Eden, right? Typically, we think of trees and apples and snakes and fig leaves. That rings a bell, doesn't it? Genesis 3. Why did God become human? Because we human beings messed up. We disobeyed God. Things needed to be cleaned up. So God has a plan B. Send the eternal word. Send the Son to make things right. In other words, the reason for the season is occasioned by sin. This is where we get, for instance, the line from St. Augustine, O Felix Culpa, right? O happy fault. One of my least favorite lines in all of Christian liturgy. It's somewhat absurd at least from my vantage point, and Merton, among others, agreed that to celebrate the Christmas, to celebrate the reason for the season, sin would mean that we'd have to celebrate it and hold up sin as a good, that sin, for some reason, brings about the greatest good, the greatest gift that God has ever offered. But this other view, which is by and large a minority tradition, a supra-lapsarian, that is, apart from or not connected to, or not dependent on the fall. This view of the incarnation, the reason for the incarnation, says that God became human not necessarily because of human sinfulness, but because of divine love, God's plan for all eternity. Though it is a minority tradition, it's, it's not well known, it's not oftentimes uh, emphasized, right? If you were to ask somebody on the street, what do you know about Christianity? And they would say, nothing. I've never heard of it. Leave me alone. I'm not interested. Then you stop somebody else who did want to talk. And you ask them, why did God become human? Most likely the answer would have something to do with human sinfulness, right? Redemption, salvation in a very narrow sense. 
But this other tradition, this other way of answering the question why God became human goes all the way back to uh, Christian scriptures, to the New Testament, to the writings of Paul, through the Benedictine tradition. Not just St. Anselm of Canterbury, who uh, is probably best known for emphasizing that infralapsarian view, that sin is the reason for the season, but a somewhat contemporary of his, a Benedictine monk by the name of Rupert of Deutz. Has anyone heard of him before? He's, I love saying his name, by the way. I think he's got one of the greatest names, Rupert of Deutz. I can change my name to any other name. There you go. Or Alexander of Hales, who is the great Franciscan, medieval Franciscan theologian Bonaventure's uh, mentor. And, and uh, he was a great, one of the first uh, Franciscan chairs at the University of Paris, a contemporary of Albert the Great's. Or Robert Grossetest, who, I don't know, here in, in uh, the UK, particularly in Great Britain, are you familiar with? I see a couple heads nod. Robert Grossetest, who was the, the Franciscan, though he's an honorary Franciscan. I, I don't know that I can do that, but I'm going to pretend. Robert Grossetest, or as I call him, Bobby Fathead. Grossetesta means big head. Robert, Bobby, he and I are very close, and so I can call him that. Uh, was Bishop of Lincoln, and at one point, Chancellor of the University of Oxford. Prior to those illustrious positions, he was the first uh, lecturer of theology for the Franciscans who crossed the channel to uh, Canterbury, to uh, then Oxford. Um, the first friars in England uh, studied under him. He believed as well, along with Alexander of Hales and Rupert of Deutz and St. Paul, that Sin may not be the primary reason God became human. There's another Franciscan, John Duns Scotus, and I know there were a few Scotus fans in the room, which is always great, great to, to see. He too, along with other unlikely figures in the 20th century, somebody like Karl Barth, who also had a view that, uh, that God became human not primarily because of sin, or the uh, Jesuit theologian Karl Rahner, so many others, but their voices aren't typically heard. So when we think about the reason for the season, I think we need to ask ourselves quite directly, why did God become human? What is it that we're celebrating this Advent? And I, I joked about those holiday cards, those greeting cards, talking about sin as the reason for the season, but this is, by and large, how many Christians go about living their lives. It's interesting, right? There's a contrast that we have. There were all these lights and celebrations and parties and festivities and lovely music and gatherings that we have during the month of December. But if you were to ask, as I said already, somebody, why did God become human? Why, is, why is it that we are celebrating Christmas and Advent at all? The truth is sin stands at the center. Well, this line of thinkers from St. Paul to Thomas Merton hold another view, and I think this is why we need to set aside Adventus, this kind of arrival of a military or political leader, this person who comes to clean up human mess because of our sinfulness. We need to set that aside for a moment. Merton is one such person in that great line of thinkers that allows us to think about the reason for the season, the reason God became human, to think about Advent and Christmas in a new way. At the end of his book, New Seeds of Contemplation, 
Thomas Merton provides us with a very straightforward answer. He asks, you know, why is it? Why is it that God created anything at all? And he says that the Lord made the world and made humanity in order that God himself might descend into the world, that he himself might become human. And God reflected, my delights are to be with the children of men and women. The world was not made as a prison for fallen spirits who were rejected by God. This is a Gnostic error. The world was made as a temple, a paradise, into which God himself would descend to dwell familiarly with the spirits he had placed there to tend it for him. God's own descent into the world to live as a human person was part of the plan for creation from the beginning. The distinction might not at first be clear, but that starting point for Merton's reflection here on the reason for the incarnation, on God's intentionality, stands in opposition to that much more popular uh, understanding that sin is the reason. Merton takes it a step further. It's not enough to say that God entered the world out of love to draw near to us, but that God created the world at all. God's plan for creation was so that God could become one with us. That Jesuit theologian I mentioned a moment ago, Karl Rahner, he famously said that when thinking about the incarnation, when thinking about God becoming human, it's not enough to say that you know, God did this to clean up the mess. Rather, that when God desires to be something other than God, God wishes to become human. This is something that God plans from all eternity. It's interesting, Merton doesn't artificially separate creation from the fall of humanity and sin, and therefore segregating the creative act of God from the redemptive and saving act of the incarnation. This is an ancient understanding of why God became human and the role and understanding of salvation. Oftentimes, we think about salvation in human sinful terms, as it should be no surprise. But Merton goes back further. His understanding is very Pauline. His understanding is very Irenaean, as in Irenaeus of Lyon, who understood God's creative act and God's salvific act not as two very distinct and separate theological claims or intentions or wills of God, but rather one in the same, two sides of the same coin. When God creates, God also intends to save. That we need to separate, in fact, our notion of redemption from salvation. Salvation is much, much more inclusive. The way that Irenaeus of Lyon talks about it is uh, it's really powerful thinking about God as Trinity. Irenaeus says that God gets outside of God's self in two ways, as if God has two hands. The one hand is the spirit. The other hand is the word. And the way that God creates is to go outside of God's self to make the world. And at the same time, in one salvific act, to kind of bring all of creation back to God's self as if providing a cosmic hug. I love this, you know. God's two hands gets outside God's self. God creates. And in that same motion, that same act, God brings everything back to God's self. 
we are in the process of that return back to God. The way that Merton understands this, like so many others who follow in that supralapsarian understanding of the incarnation, is that it was always God's plan to get outside of God's self like this, to enter the world as one of us, to bring all of creation back to God. And if we had not sinned, if we had been and remained obedient, that would still be necessary. God's plan for creation was always such that it required the word and spirit to bring all of creation back to God's self. Now, the truth is, along the way, we did sin. That's not disputed. And so we are no longer only in need of salvation, this glorification, this return of all creation back to God, but we're also in need of reconciliation, of right relationship, of redemption. And the incarnation takes care of both of those things. It accomplishes two ends. But the reason for the incarnation at all is not sin, but love. Merton writes, The Lord would not only love his creation as father, but he would enter into his creation, emptying himself, hiding himself as if he were not God but a creature. And Merton asks, why should he do this? He provides the answer. Because God loved his creatures and because he could not bear that his creatures should merely adore him as distant, remote, transcendent, and all-powerful. It's not enough for God to be this distant, abstract God of the philosophers. Now, another thing for us to think about in this season of already-not-yet anticipation, that by and large, I think most Christians go about the world thinking of God in that kind of stereotypical uh, unmoved mover who gets creation started and goes on vacation to the Virgin Islands, right? Or Malta or something like that. I'm not really sure where God vacations. Merton says, no, 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 no. God actually, from all creation, from all eternity rather, desired to be a part of this creation, desired to draw near to us out of love. Again, what Merton does is he places redemption, reconciliation, as an effect and not the cause of the incarnation. And it makes such a big difference. It makes such a big difference in our spirituality, in our outlook, in our understanding of the tradition and of Christianity if we don't start with sin. If we go back to this minority tradition, right, this idea that God would have become human no matter what, even if we had not sinned. It's interesting, too, at one point in his book, The New Man, Merton draws on that Pauline image of the second Adam and talks about Christ as the good shepherd. He talks about the redemption that's needed, our reconciliation, our getting right with God uh, in terms of a reorientation, which in a sense is very Augustinian. Those of you who know St. Augustine's writing on sin, one of the images that's so at least to me, evocative. And it's something that the medieval Franciscan St. Bonaventure lifts from Augustine and carries forward, is this idea of being bent over. That we have, under the weight of sin, kind of a navel-gazing, a self-centeredness, 
We don't see the world as it should be. We don't see it clearly because we're focused in and bent over on ourselves. We're disoriented, as it were. Through grace, Augustine and Bonaventure and others say, we are lifted up. We're made to stand upright so that we can see the world as it really is, to see the world as God intends it. And in this sense, Merton talks about a reorientation of all of human life. One of the effects of the incarnation of God becoming human, drawing on this parable of the lost sheep, is to reorient us. Merton says that the second Adam, that is Christ, right, comes down to find humanity in the depths of confusion, in the moral chaos and disintegration into which he has been plunged by the sins of the first Adam and of all of our ancestors. Christ finds us, Adam, the human race, like the lost sheep, and carries him back by the way he came in his wandering from the truth. Through the incarnation, this reorientation of human living from sin to truth, from death to life is accomplished. It is accomplished through the very act of God's recapitulation, as St. Paul says. Or as Irenaeus puts it, in my words, that big cosmic hug, everything being brought back to the creator. How is everything brought back? Well, in spirit and in word, in Christ. It's through the incarnation, though, Merton says, that we are reminded of who we are and who God intends us to be. We are brought upright. We can see the world. We can see God. We can see one another more clearly. This reorientation is in that image of the shepherd and the lost sheep, putting us on the right path, providing us a way to follow an example in Christ. This idea of, um, of disorientation, right, being disoriented, this idea of disintegration, as Merton calls it, uh, is what we might call original sin. And it's not that he and those who embrace a superlapsarian Christology or reason for the Incarnation don't believe in sin. I think that's one of the concerns some Christians have. What do you mean God would become human anyway? What do you mean that it's not because of sin? Is that because sin's unimportant, you can do whatever you want, God doesn't care? No, that's not it at all. It's just a different understanding and starting point. Merton, like his predecessors, recognizes the reality of sin. And Merton has a strong sense of what we Christians call original sin. But he calls it original forgetfulness. We no longer recall who it is we really are. We have forgotten our true self. Like the lost sheep, we are on the wrong path. And one of the effects of God becoming human is to show us the way to the right path, what that looks like. Therefore, in God's very living and walking and breathing among us, we are shown who it is we are by seeing and knowing who God is. And we are put on the right path. Before we break for uh, lunch, I'd like to use the time that we have to have a conversation. Already, a number of folks have uh, come to me with, with questions, with comments. Not too many insults yet, though they're most welcome. <laughs> Um, and uh, to, to reflect together on you know, the season of Advent, as I've already suggested in 
that little wordplay at the opening, that the term Adventus itself can be unhelpful. Um, and though a lot of people are not aware of its uh, etymology, they're not aware of the origin of the word, I think a sin-centered understanding of the incarnation aligns well with this military, political, violent understanding of the season that we celebrate. And it's emphasized or re-emphasized by so much of the cultures that we find ourselves in. What Thomas Merton does, among so many others, is offer us another way to think about the season, to think about the reason for the season, to think about why God became human. And so uh, what I'd like to do is, is really just open up this opportunity for a conversation. I can talk more about Merton. I can talk more about the Incarnation. I can, uh, you can, I'm happy to listen to your thoughts as well on this. Um, and we'll, of course, return to Merton uh, after lunch in, in greater detail. But for the time being, what's on your mind? Uh, the reason for the season, um, I'm jumping ahead to Easter and where does the understanding of crucifixion fit into this? Yeah, so that's a great question. And I think it's, it's second to this concern that I think some people who embrace the infralapsarian, the sin-centered, or even human-centered understanding of the reason for the incarnation uh, tend to focus. They say, well, wait a minute. Sin doesn't seem to play much of a role in your theology, in your outlook, in your understanding of Christianity. And then the other thing is, well, how do we understand, as you rightly know, the crucifixion? Um, is the crucifixion, is the violent death of uh, Jesus of Nazareth necessary? And from the superlapsarian perspective, the answer is no. Why does it happen then? You know, it's, it's one of these things where we got to start with not the, uh, not the end, but start at the beginning. It's, whereas I think a sin-centered, adventus understanding of the crucifixion tends to focus with the fact that this is the way Jesus of Nazareth died, that Christ died, and therefore it's, it's assumed that this was God's intention. God sends it's this really cruel image of God the Father, right, God creator, sends the Son to be slaughtered on our behalf. The crucifixion takes place the way that it does precisely because of our sinfulness. If we had not sinned, if we remained in right relationship with God and one another, then it's quite conceivable that God still would have become human, as Merton reflects, as others reflect, but that his death may not have been as violent, as fractured, as uh, as, as gruesome as we understand it to be. But precisely because he comes as that, uh, as that good shepherd, to use again the image from Thomas Merton, who shows us the way, who calls us out, who demonstrates out of love the way that we ought to live, uh, that becomes threatening to those who want to maintain the status quo, those who wish to hold power, those who wish to keep things the way that they are. And so what we see in turn is a, a silencing of that, you know, a, a violent reaction. So how does the crucifixion fit in? It is a sign, it's a reflection of the condition of human sinfulness. That God, out of love, enters the world doing nothing but speaking a message, showing a message of love, and it's greeted with, uh, with the desire to silence, to eradicate, to, to end, you know. Um, I'm not sure if that 
addresses exactly your question and, uh, or your comment, but it, it acknowledges that uh, sin does play a role in, in, in the Paschal mystery, right, in, in salvation history. But, uh, but still, it's not the focus. So the crucifixion we might see as well as an effect of human sinfulness, uh, rather than the incarnation as an effect of human sinfulness. Um, you said in your talk, I believe, if I'm right, that um, creation, man, and Christ's coming was all part of the plan before creation, as it were. Why did God have to create man to be sinful and then Christ to come and, and sort of say, save him? I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I missed the last part of that. Why did God have to create man in order for, uh, knowing that he would be sinful and knowing that, he, that Christ would have to come and save us, as it were? Yeah. So if that was all part of the plan, or yeah. That's a great question. Let me, let me start with the first. I think, you, I, think I identified three very good and, and related questions there. Um, the first is God's, yes, from this, what I'm calling the supralapsarian perspective, from the perspective of the reason for the incarnation that Merton and Rupert of Deutz and John Duns Scotus and Irenaeus and uh, St. Paul and others present, it is God's plan from all eternity to enter into creation. And what Irenaeus and what Merton, in, in other words, say is that these things are, are tied together. What's not presupposed, and this is maybe to your second point, is that sin is necessary. So it's not that God wills sinfulness. Does God create human beings with the intention or with the understanding that human beings will sin and therefore Christ is predestined for salvation? It's that... God created us in freedom with the capacity to sin. And it has been, uh, and we, ha we have to believe, right? It's possible for us not to have sin. But in truth, out of our finitude, out of our, what Merton would call our original forgetfulness, out of what Augustine talks about, our bent-overness, that we have a disorientation, a distorted view of ourselves, of one another, of God, of the world, sin arrives, right? One of the ways that um, I think it's helpful to think about sin is to go back to Genesis 3. Again, the apples and fig leaves and serpents and you know, all this kind of stuff. And I think that particular uh, chapter in the Bible is, is deeply, deeply misunderstood. So much of the first, I'll just leave it to the first three chapters of the book of Genesis, involve human eisegesis. We, we are you know, reading into the texts things that we think come from the text. And so the idea of original sin in, in Genesis 3 is precisely this point, you know, this mistaking at times uh, what is articulated in myth there as historical fact. That if, if it wasn't for Eve and Adam, these two people who uh, decided to have a fruit salad against God's plan, uh, then we wouldn't be in this mess. And in fact, what's going on there is, is something much, much more profound that I think aligns well with Merton's sense of original forgetfulness, original sin in this regard. And that is, the, what's depicted there is the truth of our own frail insecurities. 
the original sin is actually more about an original temptation, an original insecurity that Merton will talk about over and over again in his writings with regard to the false self, right? This idea of why do we put on these masks? Why do we put on these personae? And what we see play out in Genesis 3 is the snake playing the role of what I like to call the first advertising executive. <laughs> the saint, or the saint, the, the serpent says to, to the these early human beings, you're not good enough. You're not good enough as you are. You could be something else. You could be like God. And the original sin, as it were, is these human persons trying to be something other than what God created them to be. So they overreach. They overstep, right? The serpent's sale to them is, if you eat this fruit, God will like you. You will be like God. Um, think about all the ways these adverts around us are constantly telling us the same thing. You're not good enough. Buy this hair product, which is what I always have. <laughs> See how well that's worked for me. Dress this way. Buy this car. Be in this relationship. Do this kind of work. Live in this sort of place, etc., etc., etc. It's the serpent again saying, you are not good enough as you are. You need to be something else. And so we have these, you know, all these various uh, bills of goods that are sold to us, these, these empty lies. Um, though we have to believe that, that we, we, there's a possibility that we, uh, that we could have lived another way. That we would have trusted God who draws near to us, even in that Eden sense. Is that right? <laughs> The, the, the follow-up was, God knew that we wouldn't. I'm not sure. <laughs> I mean, I know that, re that strikes some as, as odd, especially when we have a Christian tradition that emphasizes God's omniscience, God's omnipotence, right? All-knowing, all-powerful, eternal, outside of time. And so how does it register that we could sin we could break relationship with God and one another. And if God knows everything, then God must have foreseen that, right? Is it possible that um, if, we, if God had created man, if God had created man without allowing him the freedom to commit sin, we would have been puppets, and he didn't want that. Is oh, that possible? That's exactly right. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Yeah, we... Yeah... You say it would be boring? Yeah, yeah I, I think that's exactly right. I mean, one of the ways it's articulated is to think about, again, the centrality of love. God so loves us, God brings us into existence to share that love with us. But authentic love, real love, is only truly love if it's willed, if, it's, if, it's, if, you, could, if you could do otherwise. You know, it's not, it's stock, it's divine Stockholm syndrome, you know. We are not just puppets, but we would be like God's, uh, uh, I don't even know what, uh, abductees if God created us without the possibility of rejecting that love, that relationship. And so, yeah, whether we're puppets or, you know, those held in, uh, in confinement, um, it, it's only truly love if it's, if, it's, if it's willed and free. Um, yeah. Oh, oh sorry. 
you're in the queue. You're next. Uh, thank you. Um, I was just, I'm interested to learn more about St. Paul's influence on Merton and like particular Pauline passages that may have been influential for him. Yeah, off the top of my head, uh, I don't know that I can identify in his own writings uh, where St. Paul appears very strongly. That's just not on the forefront of my mind, but I can talk about some of the passages in the Pauline letters, and the Deutero-Pauline letters that are striking. So, for instance, we see, um, is there a Bible in here? A, a, a what? A Bible? A Bible. Do you have one? All right. Oh, I've got one. I've got one. Thank you. I think it's better sometimes. Thank you very much. Very well prepared. I, th I think it's, it's good sometimes to actually look at the text itself. Um, so take, for instance, uh, the letter to the Ephesians in, in chapter 1. We have this, uh, just like we'll see in a moment in the, in the letter to the Colossians, we have these Christological hymns that scripture scholars believe are older than the texts themselves. So these early Christian communities, it's, it's understood, would have, would have known something along these lines, if, if not verbatim. But this, beginning in verse 3, we have this famous uh, passage, right? Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all the spiritual blessings of heaven in Christ. Now listen to this line. Before the world was made, he chose us, chose us in Christ, to be holy and spotless and to live through love in his presence, determining that we should become his adopted sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. So let me just pause there for a moment. What we hear, what we hear in the opening of the letter to the Ephesians is that it's God's plan from all eternity to make us adopted sons and daughters of God. And that's accomplished in Christ, through Christ, right? So it's... Christ's, we could assume here, the incarnation of the word uh, is part of God's plan from all eternity. So he said, uh, the letter continues, we should become his adopted sons and daughters through Jesus Christ for his own kind purposes to make us praise the glory of his grace, his free gift to us and his beloved. So there we have a very supralapsarian understanding of creation in Christ. Now, it's not that Paul denies sin or the role of redemption, the need for reconciliation, because then he says, kind of sandwiched in here this, because it's in Christ in whom through his blood we gain our freedom, the forgiveness of our sins. Just one line. And then comes back to this cosmic view yet again. Such is the richness of the grace which he has showered on us in all his wisdom and insight. He has let us know the mystery of his purpose, the hidden plan he so kindly made in Christ from the beginning to act upon when the times had run their course to the end, that he would bring everything together under Christ as head, everything in the heavens and everything on earth. And it is in him that we were claimed as God's own, chosen from the beginning under the predetermination, uh, under, excuse me, under the predetermined plan of the one who guides all things as he decides by his own will, chosen to be for his greater glory the people who would put their hopes in Christ before he came. So one, that's one passage that I think is worth, during the season of Advent, going back to and praying. It's amazing, when I was talking about eisegesis, right, reading into Scripture what it is we believe, 
how many people have read this passage or heard it proclaimed in liturgy and have thought about sinfulness? This one line in here, through his blood we have been redeemed. That's a fact, right? But it doesn't say that that was the reason. That's accomplished. Right? In other words, it's a separation between the, the causes and the effects. The cause of the incarnation is God's love, God's plan from the beginning. But there are two effects because of our sinfulness. One is the reconciliation with God, the redemption by, by Christ. And the second one is what Christ's plan from all eternity was, to bring all of creation, all of humanity, all of us back to the creator. So you see that in this short little uh, hymn, this Christological hymn, both of these things playing out. So that's one. Um, okay, so this, this comes from the, uh, the beginning of the letter to the Colossians, uh, chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. Again, another ancient Christological hymn in the Pauline text. He, that is Christ, is the image of the unseen God and the firstborn of all creation. For in him we were created, all things in heaven and on earth, everything visible and everything invisible, thrones, dominions, sovereignties, powers, all things were created through him and for him. Before anything was created, he existed. And he holds all things in unity. Now the church is his body. He is its head. As he is the beginning, he was first to be born from the dead, so that he should be first in every way, because God wanted all perfection to be found in him. In all things, this is that Irenaean sense again, right? In all things to be reconciled through him and for him, everything in heaven and everything on earth. And then we get this line, right? Again, this acknowledgement of the redemption because of our sinfulness when he made peace by his death on the cross. So there is that acknowledgement of both effects. But this idea that, that Christ was the firstborn from all creation, all was created through him and in him, unto him, we read that elsewhere as well. So those are just two examples from the Pauline texts, uh, Deuteropauline texts, too, that we get a sense of the ancient Christian communities uh, that predate even Paul's letters in the, in the 50s, right? Um, a sense that it was God's plan in the fullness of time to enter into, into creation as part of creation, primarily to bring all of creation back to God's self because that was the pre, what was predestined, to make us sons and daughters of God. But along the way, we've sinned. We've broken relationship. We need to get right with God right with one another and the rest of creation. And so that redemption is accomplished as well in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Thank you. And thank you for... You're a much better Christian than me. I don't even have a Bible with me. <laughs> so, yes, I'll just send that up here. I'd like to comment before, but beneath both of these texts... There's this Hebrew idea that God requires a sacrifice to bring it back. And that's a great problem, I find. That this, I mean, it, you, you've picked a couple of texts there. But in lots of the New Testament, this idea that God needs this sacrifice. Bringing on the old ideas of the Hebrew religion. And that, I find, is a, a problem for me. Because it comes into the liturgy. You, bang, 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 bang. And particularly if you get up to Easter, uh, you know, it's, it, it's almost like the, you know, 
the, the living in the temple, the smell of blood, you know. Yeah. You can't get away from the imagery. So I, I appreciate that because it's a, it's a concern for a lot of people. And I think that's where I highly encourage people, myself included, especially in a season like Advent, to go back to the texts and to pray with them, to meditate uh, with them, to think about what's going on here. And, and sometimes to do this study, the, the look at the commentaries. So you brought up some really good points. One is this language of sacrifice in the Christian tradition, particularly in, you know, the Roman and uh, Anglo-Catholic communities, I mean, when we talk about liturgy, this idea of sacrifice does come up, it creeps into the, into the rite and so forth. What do we mean, though? Well, first of all, whenever we see sacrifice here, we have to maybe do a, a bait and switch and replace, because sacrifice in this case means simply self-offering. Christ offers himself for us, right? But how do we understand that? Aren't parents kind of sacrificing, offering themselves for the care of their kids, right? This sort of thing. There are other ways we can understand the self-offering that does not necessarily uh, evoke the, the, the blood and the torture and the Mel Gibson image of what you know, the crucifixion is, right? Or the life of Christ was all about. You mentioned, too, um, some understandings, the kind of comparing and contrasting with uh, temple sacrifice uh, in, in Judaism, and where we, where that kind of arises in the New Testament, probably most strongly appears in the letter to the Hebrews, which is a complicated text, to say the least. It's 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 a very difficult text in some ways because there are elements of supersessionism in there that talk about, you know, it's a comparing and contrasting that I think is is unfair to our Jewish sisters and brothers. Um, it's, it's read sometimes and used to justify, justify anti-Semitism and other forms of violence. And so we have to be careful with it. It's not that there isn't truth in the text and what's being communicated. The key there is that the self-offering of, of Christ is understood to be sufficient. Um, and that uh, I think that's the best place to kind of leave that instead of the comparing and contrasting. But then we get into this other thing, which is you talked about you know, the idea of sacrifice is necessary, uh, the kind of offering to God to make things right in terms of reconciliation. And while there is maybe some precedent in uh, ancient Near Eastern religious traditions, including ancient Judaism and so forth, where, where we really see this come to the fore isn't until the Middle Ages, particularly in the writings of Anselm of Canterbury and Curdeus Homo. Why did God become human? I mentioned this in passing in setting up the way that Merton and others offer this, this equally orthodox, equally legitimate understanding of why God became human. Anselm was very much a man of his time, right? We're talking about the 12th century uh, feudal society in which uh, honor and status means a lot. Um, I dare say it might mean more culturally you know, in the United Kingdom than it does in, in the United States. Uh, where, but that's not necessarily true either. I was reminded that our constitution in the U.S. forbids uh, the bestowing of noble statuses. Uh, maybe we needed that because we look at the mess we're in now, <laughs> but that's neither here nor there. In any event, this idea of nobility, though, of, 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 uh, of honor is one of the things that governs Anselm's understanding of uh, the incarnation and the necessity of the incarnation. He writes a text in which he tries to make sense of the logic 
of why God would become human. Right? St. Paul anticipates this a little bit in his first letter to the Corinthians, where he says, you know, people who operate according to the logic of the world, the wisdom of the world, are going to find Christ and Christ crucified to be a stumbling block and to be foolishness. And so, in a real sense, Anselm is going back to that question. Why is it sensible that God would become human? And he says, well, first of all, we've sinned. We've broken relationship. We've dishonored God. And we are so far, so distant from the nobility, from the status, the, the kind of glory of God, that there's nothing we can do to atone for that, to make up for it. And so he goes through all the possibilities. Well, could God just forgive us, kind of writ large? And Anselm says, well, sure, God could do that, but, and it would be in keeping with divine mercy, but there'd be no, you know, where's divine justice? It would be against God's own exercise of God's self to do that. And so he says, well, maybe God could have become an angel and made things right. He says, well, that doesn't make any sense because angels are created, but they're not material. And what if God became a rock, you know, or a bird or something like that? So, well, that'd be material, but his understanding, they don't have a, you know, a soul, a spirit. So in the end, he's like, the only thing that makes sense is a, quote, God-man. And therefore, the reason that that's necessary is because somebody had to, on the one hand, be equal to us and equal to God to make things right. And so that's a deeply futile, deeply uh, honor system-based understanding, but it's deeply culturally contextual. It's very much, it makes sense in his context. And I think there's a lack of awareness uh, in a lot of people that that's, that he's a man of his time and that makes sense. And there's an internal logic to his argument, but is that really reflective of God's plan? God's intention? Or is it us projecting, you know, creating God in our image and likeness or in our society's image and likeness? Does God really operate that way? And my response to that sacrificial language is that's still more of us doing what Anselm did, which is we use a lot of sacrificial language. We use a lot of, uh, you know, violent imagery at times. You know, we talk about we, I think we are actually much more comfortable with that original meaning of adventus. And that, for me, at least as we go into the season, is a stand-in, is kind of a token for projecting onto God and into the tradition that which may not actually be there. And so that's why I appreciated the, the question about the letters from Paul, the New Testament text. Because if you go back and you read that and, and pray with that, it's like, well, wait a minute. Is this, what is it, what's really being said here? What is it that we really believe? So, um, so I respect that and I, and I appreciate the, the challenge because it's so deeply ingrained in our culture and not even in, in Christian culture, but I think when people look at Christianity, uh, this idea of sin and sacrifice is the starting point. Well, that's a, that makes for a really bad Christmas party, doesn't it? going to pour your eggnog and, and have your, uh, have your uh, gift exchange thinking about sin. You know? But in a sense, that's what we, we base so much of the tradition in. And I just don't think that's actually there. Though it's, it's widely popular. So they're within the same, uh, same century. And I, my understanding is they all basically had this uh, majority tradition logic which said, well, sure, God could have done this but it would be against, yeah, there's the but. 
but God acts like us. And God can't be entirely merciful. I'll tell you, that's one reason I'm so grateful for the current Bishop of Rome, who took the name Francis, too. I mean, leave it to a Jesuit to take the name Francis of Assisi. <laughs> just, just a little jab. They're getting us back for uh, when the Franciscan Pope suppressed the Jesuits uh, back in the, uh, in the 16th century, or 17th century. But, um, you know, this idea that Pope Francis has really talked about is the truly unconditional degree of God's mercy which we don't believe. We have so convinced ourselves, this is that original forgetfulness that Merton's talking about, right? This idea of being disoriented. We, are, we have kind of, it's, it's like Alice in Wonderland. We've gone through the looking glass and we've flipped everything upside down. And yeah, we create God in our own image and likeness. And, and where I see this being helpful is how do we just go through the motions of the next four weeks in preparation for Christmas not critically reflecting on and praying on how exactly we try to create God in our own image and likeness. What is it that we are anticipating come December 25th? Um, so thank you for that. Um, you know, Irenaeus, he, he said of um, Adam and Eve, you know, why did they take the advice of the snake? And, and he said they weren't wise enough. And I think that's a really interesting way of looking at the problem of sin, that actually... When we're wise, we can see God as God really is. Um, and also, I think the way you're telling the story is so different that it takes a while for us to get our heads around. You know, we're used to saying there was something blessed, then it was fallen, and then there was nothing, and then there was Jesus. <laughs> we kind of miss out God. You know, God seems to go on holiday for a long time and then suddenly pops up in Jesus. So by telling the story the way you're telling it, you get a more sense that not of an all-powerful God, who swoops in and rescues people, but of God's faithful commitment to the world through the prophets, through Moses, and so on. So I think it's much more helpful um, for that. Um, but I wondered, you know, the, the, the hug, the divine hug, yeah. does it need our response, or do you think actually without our response, is it salvation and creation? You know, if God is like a gardener, you yeah. know, saving what can be saved, does it need the response of a, you know, or does it need our hug back? You know, yeah. what do you reckon? Yeah. That's a really great question. And, and first of all, I want to thank you. I don't think I've heard anyone describe you know, the kind of majority tradition of, of the incarnation and sin in so stark and good a way. You know, this, 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 you know, God's on vacation, on holiday, comes back, etc. Um, so thank you for that. Um, also, I don't think I've heard anyone ask that question quite as well either, so I'm going to have to think about that a little bit. Do, do we need to hug back? So there, what, what that raises for me is a couple things. One is I also appreciate the gardener image, the gardener language, because we are, in a sense, God's plants. <laughs> you know, how quickly we forget, we move from Genesis 1 to Genesis 3 and forget about the fact that we, human persons, are ha'adamah, you know, created from the earth molded from the earth, made of the same as the physicist Carl Sagan used to say, right? Made of star stuff. We are physically made up of the same elements as the rest of creation. And so I think that idea that God is bringing all of this back to God's self through word and spirit uh, also says something important about non-human creation and its role in God's plan for salvation. I think this is all of a piece that we, we are not just sin-focused, 
we're also an deeply anthropocentric, that we think that it's all about us and that everything else in this cosmos is our backdrop, our backdrop. The way I like to talk about this sometimes is, you know, it used to be argued from a Christian perspective that God has given us dominion, right? The right to dominate or subdue, to be sovereigns over creation, non-human creation. And so we are effectively the lords of creation. And then we've switched to this other mode uh, where stewardship and care for creation is emphasized, which in and of itself is not a bad thing. But I, I like to say we've moved from being lords of creation then to landlords of creation, where we are now letting you know, this, this land that in this world that God has made belongs to God, and we're just, you know, we're, we're leasing it. Um, I think both of those are inadequate, and I think it ties back to this notion of how do we understand our place within creation, not just our relationship to God in terms of salvation. And I don't know, I don't have a full answer to that, because on the one hand, uh, we do have the ability to hug back to love and return or to reject that. Um, but I think it also raises a question about our non-human creaturely siblings in this world. Does a squirrel have the ability to hug God back? Or a tree? And to some people, maybe some in this room are thinking, oh, here goes that crazy Franciscan talk again, you know, <laughs> brother, son, and sister moon, and all of this. But I think there's something deeply profound there. And I want to say that not just human beings, not just our species, has the ability to hug God back. But I think that God has a direct and immediate relationship to the rest of creation as well. One that we have undervalued uh, at our own, you know, to benefit ourselves, our sense of self. I also think that um, as much as I really appreciate and love the, the tradition of the Eastern churches, the Orthodox churches too, uh, one of the ideas that's been articulated about what a human person is, is the priest or priestess of creation. That we're like the middle persons, the middleman between God and non-human creation. And that we offer kind of praise because these dumb creatures can't do it themselves. And my feeling is actually that Irenaean sense is that we're part of a bigger picture. And maybe, though I don't have a well-formed answer to the question about is it necessary for us to hug back for all of creation to be brought back to God, I think before we can even ask that question, we need to reinstate re ourselves, you know, reorient ourselves, to use Merton's language, back within a broader family of the, of the cosmos, the family of creation. So maybe the question isn't so much about is it necessary for us humans to do that, though we acknowledge our creation and, and freedom and free will, but maybe how does God relate to all of creation of which we're a part? One of the things in, in this idea that these creatures, you know, both what we would call living and unliving creatures too, we could talk about stones and, and asteroids as you know, they're created by God, right? They're creatures by definition. Um, you said that, she said that they, by virtue of just living, you know, some of these creatures seven miles underneath the ocean and so forth are giving praise to God. And I said it's deeply Franciscan because that's exactly what Francis of Assisi's Canticle of the Creatures is all about. You know, for those who are familiar with it, it, it you know, we, we focus on the brother and sister language, right? Brother sun, sister moon, mother earth, brother fire, sister water, and so forth. But Francis of Assisi opens that, it's only 14 verses long, opens 
with this line, praise be you, God, uh, all praise and glory is owed to you. And then the next line he has is, no human being is worthy to utter your name, which most of us look over because we don't like things that say that humans are bad, right? And then he says, praise be you, my Lord, through brother sun, who gives us light and rays. And praise be you, my Lord, through sister moon. And praise be you, my Lord, through our sister mother earth, who provides us with all sorts of life and greenery and herbs and so forth. And a lot of people look at that and it's like, they, they and I shared this with somebody during our break, that it's, there's this, what I call the effect of the birdbath industrial complex. This idea of caricaturing or romanticizing or kind of rereading Francis of Assisi as this kind of goofy cartoon. And they look at this and they say, oh, Francis of Assisi loved all creation, loved the deer and loved the birds and all this kind of stuff. And that's what this canticle is all about, this, this writing. But if you go back and look at the text itself, what Francis is doing is saying that the sun, the moon, water, fire, the earth gives praise to God. And the question is, how is each of these elements giving praise to God? It's exactly what you just said. By being what it is God created it to be. The problem with human beings, from our vantage point, is that we have, again, to go back to Merton, we have forgotten who we are created to be. We have bought into the snake's sale. We have convinced ourselves that we're not enough or worthy enough. And it's really distorted when we think of incarnation and about the crucifixion and everything. You know, We like to think that uh, if you have, I call it Mel Gibson sort of image of the passion right, of the Christ, then all of a sudden what we're doing is really honoring God and the great, going back to Paul's point, sacrifice of God or something. Is that what we're doing, or are we actually making this about us? Is it an exercise in self-loathing? Oh, I'm so terrible. Look what I did to Christ. Oh, if I didn't, all my sins, I did this. It's, oh. and, and to some extent, I feel like that's a rocking chair theology. It's fun to do for a while, but it doesn't get us anywhere. We just kind of stay there. And I don't think that's what Christianity calls us to. Christ didn't come, live, preach, minister, enter into relationship, suffer and die because of sinfulness and be raised from the dead so that we can dwell on how terrible we are. That's kind of a narcissistic, you know, it's that Augustinian looking on ourselves sort of thing. Instead, you know, I think we're called to something else, a less anthropocentric, a less selfish, a less narcissistic way of understanding our faith. And maybe, just maybe, it's not all about us. <laughs> I think it was recently a James Finley recording I was listening to and he was saying about that each of the mystics has a sort of central metaphor for the, their relationship or how they encounter God. Obviously you've got the cloud of unknowing anonymous author and, uh, and Teresa of Avila the interior castle and John of Class uh, Dark Knight of the Soul. And what he said was that he believed that uh, Thomas Merton, very much a mystic, his central metaphor is exactly the true and the false self. And it struck me for a while now that the, the idea of the true self is immensely, wonderfully encouraging. This idea that uh, God has created us, um, our true self, and uh, the relationship uh, 
that the false self is this um, is this life of is what sin in effect is. Just two sentences from New Seeds. It says, for most of the people in the world, there is no greater subjective reality than this false self of theirs, which cannot exist. A life devoted to the cult of this shadow is what is called a life of sin. And I think that um, this has so much wonderful potential for uh, transforming our understanding of, of how God saves us in that um, to say that we want to, the desire to become our true self, uh, he helps us free, become free of our false self. And that is actually something which is immensely attractive in terms of actually wanting to engage in that transformation, which otherwise is rather intimidating. Um, I think that's exactly right. And, um, you know, we shouldn't lose sight either, as, as Merton says in New Seeds and elsewhere, and as, as Jim Finley says in his fantastic book, you know, uh, Merton's Palace of Nowhere, that, um, that the, the discovery of our true selves is only possible in discovering God. And so I, I think this is uh, why it's so immensely important that there are programs like the Meditatio Center, this idea of meditation and contemplation of prayer. Um, it, it is an exercise in um, not discovering ourselves as we would want ourselves to be. That's the creation of another false self, right? another mask. Uh, but in the pursuit of, of God. So I thank you for bringing that up. I think that's exactly right. I wonder if the, the thought that, that love is the starting point of um, God interaction with us can also help us in our interaction with other people. Because very often we act as we think God will act with us. So this is why we are very judgmental this is why there are a lot of angry Christians around, because we pretend to be a sort of God who punish and torture people. And so I wonder if you think that this new cosmology, this new, um, well, it's not new, but this idea of the love of God can also can help us in our relationship with others. And also another qu very quick question, um, just a thought that I'm thinking, so if it's, Heretical, just. <laughs> um, can we say that the main offering to God has been Christ's incarnation, rather than is that on the cross? And by saying that the incarnation is the main offering, then we can also have different element of that offering. Uh, that basically are the what we normally say in the liturgy, Christ has. Uh, as die, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. So three dimension of a main offering to God that we can we, we, we have in the incarnation of Christ. So two very, very important and good insights. Um, the, the second first maybe, I don't think you're a heretic. <laughs> so you're you're in you're in good shape. And part of the reason is uh, thinking of of God's main offering or, or Christ's primary offering, self-offering, uh, 
offering of self in this case that you describe is found in the opening to the letter to the Philippians too, right? We get this canonic hymn where though he was in the form of God, Jesus did not deem equality with God something to be grasped. Rather, he empties himself, taking on our weakness, our frailty, becoming like us, you know, to draw near to us. So in a sense, I think you're in good company. You know, the author of the letter to the Philippians is saying exactly the same thing you are, that where is the point? It's, 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 it's a self-offering love. It's sacrificial love. It's agape love, right? Um, so to say that the incarnation is the primary offering, I think fits very well with the tradition. Um, and I just lost sight of the first thing you were asking about. Uh, about the fact that um, knowing that oh, the help, main but, point is love. Yes, yes, absolutely. So um, the question is, of course, you know, what do we mean by love? What is the love that God calls us to in Christ? Um, and so I think the Gospel of John is... You see this over and over again, time in and time out. Uh, Jesus is conveying exactly what this love is, the love that motivates God's actions and that we are called to respond to not only in a kind of one-direction, unidirectional uh, relationship with God, but with our neighbors too, right, with the people in our lives. And at the risk of delaying lunch by three more minutes, can I, can I offer an interpretation of a passage from John that I think illustrates this point? And it comes at the very end uh, in John's Gospel, chapter 21, where you have these post-resurrection appearances. So, you know, most people tend to think about uh, Jesus appearing through the locked doors, doubting Thomas, that whole scene, right? We get distracted by, by that. But I think one of the more striking and informative scenes is what takes place on the beach at the very last resurrection appearance. Um, just to set the scene for us, right? The disciples, they've, they've lost uh, sense of what's going on. They don't know what's happening. Jesus has just been murdered. They think it might be happening to them. So what do you do? Well, you've got to pay the bills. They go back to work, right? They go back to the fishing. And they catch nothing all night long. They're out there. They come in in the morning, and there's this mystery figure on the, on the shore. At first, they think maybe it's a ghost which by now you think they've learned, but they don't. Story of our lives, too, right? It's, it's Jesus who's preparing for them a meal, uh, this Eucharistic with a lowercase e moment. And uh, the meal is prepared over a charcoal fire. What's significant about that is the same words in Greek are used to describe the fire a few chapters earlier that Peter was warming his hands by when he was uh, asked you know that Jesus, right? No, I've seen you with him. And he denies Jesus three times. And so a lot of people uh, interpret that scene between Jesus and Peter on the beach shore in the resurrection appearance as Peter's opportunity to get right with Jesus. Three times uh, he denied Jesus, and now Jesus says, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? That rings a bell, right? People are familiar with that passage. And uh, that's fine. I think that's an okay to read, way to read it. But if we go back to the Greek, we have a more robust understanding of what's going on there. Because the word love is not the same word used in that whole exchange. It changes. So, you know, we, there are many words in Greek for love. Right? There's, there's philia, which is like in, in my country, the city in Pennsylvania, Philadelphia, which is the city of 
Brotherly love, yeah, some people know that reputation. Brotherly love. Philia is fraternal, sororal, friendly love. It's loving people that you like or that you know, that you associate with. There's eros, right? We all know what that means. At least we think we do. There's the root word for the English erotic, the idea of romantic love or uh, sometimes sexual love, but that, not just that. It's a kind of love that is energizing, life-giving. It comes from without. It's not really of your doing or control. And then there's gape, right, which is the love that Christ talks about time and time again. It's the self-sacrificial, or Carl, to use that language you introduced, it's the self-offering love that Jesus models in his whole life, ministry, preaching, death, and resurrection. And so we go back to that scene on the beach, and Jesus asks Peter, Peter, or Simon, son of John, do you agape? Do you love like I love, like I've shown you? Earlier in John's Gospel, right, I think it's in verse, or in around chapter 15 or so, it might be a little bit earlier than that, Jesus tells them, right, love one another as I have loved you, as the Father has loved me. And he asks Peter there, do you love like I have called you to love? And Peter says, Lord, you know everything, you know that I Philia. The word in Greek is a different kind of love. Peter responds to Jesus' question not with a self-offering, self-sacrificial love, but a love that he is capable of at that time. I can love the people I like. I can love my brothers and sisters. Then Jesus asks him again, Peter, right? Simon, son of John, do you agape? And Peter says, what? Lord, you know I philia. He says the same thing, right? He's not answering Jesus with what he's being invited to. The third time, Jesus says, Simon, son of John, do you philia? Jesus changes the word from agape to philia. And this is where you get that scene where Peter, as the, a lot of translations put it, they, they say that he gets really sad or really upset. I think you know, Peter had an anger problem, so I could just see him getting really furious, really worked up. And he says... Lord, you know everything. You know me. You know that I feel ya. And then Jesus tells this weird story. Right? When you were a young man, Peter, you used to dress yourself. You used to put your belt on yourself. And you used to go where you wanted to go. But as you get older, you're going to be led to places you didn't ask for. And then he closes by saying, follow me. I think it's the last parable, the, the, the instruction about this idea of love. It's not enough just to love God. God has already first loved us, and we show that love to God by following Jesus. And what does that mean? It means, though most of us find it very, very difficult, I would dare say all of us, by virtue of our human weakness, right, our own struggles, our own temptation to the false self and to self-centeredness, we can barely move outside the philia, right, the, the loving people that we find easy to love and to like and that we associate with voluntarily. But what Jesus calls us to, like he calls Peter, is a deeper love, a self-offering love, a sacrificial love like you're talking about. And to talk about that's the whole reason God became human, in part, is to show us that. That's what Merton means when he says that he's the good shepherd who comes and finds us disordered and disoriented. We're going off in the wrong direction. We're only doing what we want. We're very selfish. We're dressing ourselves and going where we want to go. But the good shepherd comes to show us the path to follow in, in offering this self-sacrificial love. Um, and I, I've always understood that last line before Jesus says, follow me, where he says, if you get older, you're going to be led to places you don't want to go as a sign of what it means to love like Christ. 
We think about him in Gethsemane the night before. He did not want to go on the cross. You know, I don't think that's anyone's idea of a good time. Maybe some people's idea of a good time. That's weird. But, <laughs> but I think this, this idea that you've led to places you don't want to go means you're gonna, the Spirit will drive you to encounter people in your life that you don't find easy to love or like or would choose to associate with. And how you respond in those situations, that's, that's what it means to love like Christ, to love as the Father has loved him and so he has loved us. I think the last note on that is I think that last exchange is very hopeful because that change in the third question is that I kind of see Jesus calling Peter to that love that he's, what it means to be a follower of Christ, but then comes to this realization. It's almost like he says, Peter, I hear you. I know right now this is how you love, but you're called to something more. And so I think that's something that we're invited to as well. So I think that's exactly right, that insight that if we understand the incarnation is the primary suffering, the primary sense of love, then it says a lot about what we're called to if we call ourselves followers of Christ. So I think it's time for us to break for lunch. Thank you for letting me go over a little.